before we read our first scripture from Micah, I want to lay out the landscape a bit because this is a unique piece of scripture that's best understood when we understand how it's laid out. And so what's happening here is we're in the sixth chapter, and God is bringing a lawsuit against Israel. And so the way it's laid out is Micah begins as the narrator, and then God speaks, and then the people respond, and then Micah comes in as the narrator to bring the final word from the passage. And so it begins in verse 1. Hear what the Lord is saying. Arise, lay out the lawsuit before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, mountains, the lawsuit of the Lord. Hear, eternal foundations of the earth. The Lord has a lawsuit against his people with Israel, he will argue. And the Lord says, My people, what did I ever do to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam before you. My people, remember what Moab's king Balak had planned and how Balaam, Beor's son, answered him. Remember everything from Shatin to Gilgal that you might learn to recognize the righteous acts of the Lord. The people respond, With what should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? Should I come before Him with entirely burned offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with many torrents of oil? Should I give my oldest child for my crime, the fruit of my body for the sin of my spirit? And Micah responds, He has told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you. To do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. This passage reminds me thinking of the scene reminds me of a movie, and maybe if any of you have ever seen Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, it's a, it's a movie that I watched because Jim Carrey stars in it, and it wasn't a typical Jim Carrey movie, it was rather serious, and he plays the part of a man named Joel, who is heartbroken over his breakup with Clementine, and in his agony, he seeks the services of a company who can erase parts of your memory. He wants to forget all about Clementine to be spared his pain. It's a really interesting premise. But from the moment the procedure begins, the movie then jumps and, and takes place in Joel's mind, and it, and it works backwards through memories of Clementine. And so it starts with the most, recent, uh, the most recent argument, the breakup, and then it jumps to what happened before then. And he relives these memories from a first-person perspective, and he can react and interact with the memories. And so it goes from difficult and sad and fighting and disappointment, but then as he works through and gets far enough back, and as those bad memories are erased, he suddenly finds himself confronting memories that he'd forgotten, memories that were good, that were beautiful, moments of the relationship that, that really drew his heart in, and he begins to remember those good parts. So then it's, it's quite a conundrum he's in because they're being erased one by one. He can't wake up, and so he, in the movie, tries to save his memory through some sort of emotional and creative effort, which 
is best just understood watching the movie. It's a strange one, but it's a good one. The idea is that this beautiful relationship had been destroyed by Joel and Clementine forgetting what the relationship was all about in the beginning, where it began, and how that relationship defined them both. And so they didn't need to have things erased. Rather, they needed to remember. And that brings us to exactly where we're going to begin our series. Revival is our series that we're going to be on the next few weeks. And this revival, you may think of an old-time revival camp meetings. People in the pioneer days would travel for days and come to an area and spend a week, days, uh, listening to sermons, several hours long sermons. How many of you sound, thinks that sounds like fun this morning? We, we can do that if you want. Uh, no, that maybe doesn't sound like so much fun. But it really brought people away from their normal life and to engage with God and the community. And so revivals became a very powerful moment. And it wasn't so much, I think the power of it is when you step away from life and the routine and you remember your relationship with God. This remembering, it, it awakens us. And if we define revival, we define it by saying that revival is to be restored to life, to be restored to consciousness. And so when we woke up this morning, we were restored to consciousness and we realized that we were in our beds and Sunday had begun and we were revived. And it's a good thing. And this awakening is an image I want us to hold on to because we're seeking revival to snap out of the sleepy state which many of us find ourselves in from one moment to the next. Revival is the return and the remembering of who we are, who God is, and the relationship that we have between us. Now, when you dedicate time to remembering the bigger story of your life and the bigger picture, you can be awakened to the true foundation of what life is really all about. And the Micah passage paints this, this revival idea from the standpoint of remembering. And so these, these four characters, Micah the narrator, creation who witnesses the trial, God who pleads with the people to remember, and the Israel personified as a person asking how they needed to respond to please God. It's really an interesting image because the people, they'd been set free by God long ago. They'd been brought out of slavery in Egypt. They had been redeemed. They had been saved. They'd been restored and revived as a whole new people with God as their God. And their job was to take all of the blessings of the strength and resources and opportunity that God gave them to be a people that would live in a completely different way to show the world this better way to live, this revived way of God. And so making slaves as they had found themselves being made in Egypt, that was never how things were supposed to be. Walling each other off was never God's will. And we still find ourselves struggling with some of these things today. If anyone can bring about the kind of justice that God intended, it would be the people that had been freed because they had lived generations at the very bottom of the society and the food chain. They'd been at the base of the totem pole. They'd been under the boot of the empire. So if we found someone in our world today, maybe you just take a second to think about how we might envision somebody who represents the bottom, the absolute bottom of the worldly society, someone who witnessed atrocities of just how cruel the world can be. What would they look like? 
What pigment would their skin be? What gender are they? What are they wearing? We think of this person that knows the bottom. And if we as a world said, we're going to give you complete control of the world and all of its resources, we'd have to have some pretty good confidence that they would never want anyone to experience what the bottom is, that they've seen it and they know it's pain and loneliness. And so we would think that this person would be able to make better decisions than those of us who have been on top and, and been catered to most of our life. This was Israel. Israel was this person, and they had forgotten. And so what, what had happened in the time of Micah is they had become the people on the top, and they had forgotten their story and their whole purpose. And particularly in Micah, the temple, just a couple of chapters before our passage today, it had collected so much excess money and contribution that it didn't know what to do. Meanwhile, God's temple, where they worship, had been built by slaves. Around the temple were widows and orphans that were starving. Foreigners were being regarded as subhuman, and the people kept right on bringing sacrifice and offering and money and, and worshiping amidst this reality. They were worshiping, but they had forgotten who they were. They'd forgotten what God had done. In response to God's reminder, they start offering an increase in their corporate worship practice. You could see how they're, they're so caught up in this life of excess that they think they can please God with, well, they kind of start building up. Should we bring you burned offerings? How about year-old calves? How about thousands of rams? How about 10,000 rivers of oil? Or how about our firstborn children? They think that this is what God wants, that if they just up the ante of ritual, that God will be pleased. Somehow that's going to bring them back into right relationship when God's like, you just need to remember. And these people, they were struggling to wake up. They were struggling to look outside of the box that they had created for themselves. And my, oh my, do we know that box. Now, at the end of the passage, Micah offers the truth when the people want to know, what do we need to do, God? Micah says, the Lord's requirement is a life dedicated to justice. Embrace a faithful love and walk humbly with your God. Now, God's justice is to make sure that no one is ever under the boot, that no one is at the bottom, that everyone is at the same level. That is God's justice. This faithful love is simply to remember God's faithful love to them and to live into that love and to love everyone else in the same way, to respond appropriately to God's love and then to walk humbly with your God. Now, maybe we have days where we feel like we want to do right by people, that we want to do right by God and, and we are in that faithful love, but this, this humility can be difficult. Essentially, all they need to do what Mike is telling them, what God is telling them, remember who you were and all that God has done for you. And then go and be a reflection of God's goodness and grace upon everyone around you. Everyone. A life lived in this manner is really what it's all about. Then, when we're living that kind of life, then our sacrifices and our rule following actually means something. Then, when we're living rightly, then we begin to truly live as God would have us live. 
Israel needed revival, and we need revival today to the kind of life that comes from God and not from our own pursuits. This ancient understanding of the words eternal life is not, it's not about the life that goes on forever and ever. It's rather a life that is real and true as the way that our biblical writers write it. It's, it means actual life, actually living. It has very little to do with going on and on and on forever. And we get swallowed up in the kind of life of the normal hustle and bustle of our schedules and families, or maybe it's just me. I'll raise my hand. Sometimes we get swallowed up in the feeling of separation due to our last names, as if the Sanfords deserve something more or different than everyone else. Sometimes we get so swallowed up in our patriotism as if people from our country deserve things that others don't. Or sometimes we get swallowed up in our religion or our denomination. We get swallowed up in our fandom, our fixation on ourselves and our, our, and our ego. We zero in on what is wrong. And we make an other out of people. And this life when we live like this, it's actually a dead life based on temporary things. This country is temporary. Every denomination, even every religion, is temporary. There's only one eternal. There's only one real. Now this life that's founded upon temporary is compared to the life founded upon God. The dead life compared to living life. The the world life compared to eternal life. And sometimes we need to snap out of it and wake up to the fact that every system we have built on the planet is going to fall away and end. It will all be renewed and restored through Jesus Christ and the process has already begun. Which is what the Beatitudes is really all about in our Matthew passage. And so, we're going to read the Matthew passage and understand what it is, what these sayings are, because these sayings are not a proclamation of what you need to do to live rightly. Rather, they are a proclamation about a new reality that springs forth in Jesus Christ. It compares the kingdom reality, the eternal life, and all that it means with the world reality and temporary life. In our world, where empires rule, corruption is everywhere. We, we have bought into the narrative that we need to seek wealth and mammon, and that's our security, where we need to draw lines and determine who is in and out, who's acceptable and unacceptable. We, we exclude. We do this. The church does this. We all do it. Every church does it. Every world entity excludes and perpetuates the idea that there is an us and there is a them. So Jesus announces this new reality, and he begins the announcement of this new reality to proclaim some truth about who it is that's going to grasp this new reality ahead of the rest of us. And so this is how he begins in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountain. He sat down and his disciples came to him. Now he's talking where all the crowds and everyone can hear him. But the disciples, what separates a crowd member from a disciple, the disciples draw near because they want to zero in and they want to hear 
what Jesus has to say. So he taught them saying this, happy are people who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are people who grieve because they will be made glad. Happy are people who are humble because they will inherit the earth. Happy are people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness because they will be fed until they are full. Happy are people who show mercy because they will receive mercy. Happy are people who have pure hearts because they will see God. Happy are people who make peace because they will be called God's children. Happy are people whose lives are harassed because they are just, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are you when people insult you and harass you and speak all kinds of bad and false things about you because of me. Be full of joy and be glad because you have a great reward in heaven. In the same way people harassed the prophets who came before you. And the great revival of human life and all of creation that Jesus ushers in, it is the hopeless who are happy and blessed because they've not become blinded to the weakness and the lure of worldly systems. They're not benefactors of the systems, and they haven't fallen asleep to think that these systems are good. They are well aware of the utter failure any human system will ultimately be. And so they are conscious and they are awake. They understand the beauty of God's eternal life offered to them, and they are grabbing onto it. Those who grieve, who are oppressed, who are starving for justice, who are merciful, who are not corrupt, who live their lives to offer comfort and peace, who are harassed, they are kingdom ready. They are awake. And we have to ask ourselves in this time of revival, are we awake? Are we conscious? Do we find ourselves being drawn into worldly ideas and concerns to the point where we lose control of ourselves and we forget where we've been? We forget all that God has done. We've all fallen into this. We do it all the time. We like comfort. We like thinking about what's right in front of us and not remembering where we came from. God reached to all of us at one point. And if you've not experienced that, God is reaching to you right now. This Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ brought to the world that came down from heaven from God who is just waiting to be a part of your life, to wake you up, to wake us all up as individuals, as a community of people in this building, in this church, in this body, to the churches all around, to the worldwide body of Christ. The Holy Spirit awakens us. We grow up and we learn these systems, and they have lots of good things about them, but sometimes we forget that they're temporary and that really God brings us the life that lasts, that's real. And so we have to unlearn what we've learned and we have to learn anew and be renewed. And the good news is, friends, the Holy Spirit renews us when we simply let her. When we say yes, when we acknowledge that we 
are asleep about a great many things. And God wants nothing more than to renew us and remake us and restore us and engage with us and bring blessing on the world through us to revive us, to revive the church, to revive all of creation. And so let us engage this revival with all that we have holding nothing back because we want to live. We want to live. Let us remember as we enter into this series, as we enter into this week. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you that we can look to the scriptures and and see the stories that happen again and again and again of your people falling asleep and you making great effort to wake us up. You having love and grace and mercy to enter into our story and to walk us back to right paths. I thank you that we can submit ourselves to you knowing we don't have it all figured out, knowing that you have done so much for us and as we are overwhelmed by the world at times, help us just to remember that we just need you and we just say yes to you in this day and in this moment and trust that your Holy Spirit knows what we need, that we could simply submit. We can awaken to the reality that Jesus Christ ushered in 2,000 years ago and is continuing to usher in in our lives today right now. So Lord, be with us and help us to be a people revived. Amen. Mm -hmm.